0: Amen, cool. Uh, It's great to be back with you again and to spend the next 20 minutes or so unpacking another piece of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, this collection of teachings where Jesus tells his followers to live a life focused on God and his kingdom in all that they do. Now, if you've ever heard a sermon before, or maybe something like a TED Talk or a presentation or whatever it is, uh, you'll recognize the format of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You know, in a talk, there's that main bit where someone presents or explains or discusses whatever it is that they're talking about. And then you come to the end, and there's often a call to action. The main bit is kind of over And the vibe sort of changes into a question of what are you going to do about it now? Is this going to change your life? And if so, how? This call to action, a call to choice, to decision from the audience is where we're rejoining the Sermon on the Mount this evening. It has been a really long time since we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. I think we've done Lamentations and then Easter since then. So it has been a while. You might not have even been here when we were in the Sermon on the Mount. So you would definitely be forgiven if you struggled to recall exactly what was in the Sermon on the Mount. But if we're gonna answer Jesus' question when he asks, what are you gonna do about it? What are you gonna do about the things that I've just said. It's probably helpful to remind ourselves of the things that Jesus is calling us to and inviting us to step into. So I've set myself a little challenge, okay, to summarize the Sermon on the Mount in a couple of minutes. I tried to get it to two minutes, but it was like two minutes, three seconds. So we'll see how it goes. Um, I do want to caveat this slightly before I get started. Clearly, it's not going to be as good as the actual one, okay? Um, Because, like Jesus, you know? Um, So don't expect too much. But I do hope that it just does us a favor and helps us to answer that question Which gates are we going to enter? Knowing that the narrow gate is an invitation to the breadth of the kingdom of God. That Jesus talks about in that Sermon on the Mount. So here we go. Stay with me. If you want to open Matthew 5 and kind of see how I do, feel free. Yeah, come on. People are doing it. Great. Open it. Open it. Fab. So Jesus talks of this upside down kingdom where the poor in spirit and the persecuted are given the kingdom of heaven where the meek will inherit the earth and those who mourn will be comforted. That's the Beatitudes. Jesus tells his followers that they are salt and light, both preserving and illuminating the goodness of God in a dark world through glorifying the Father. Jesus then talks about how he has come to fulfill the laws of old by calling his people to more, to embody the spirit of the law in our hearts rather than merely keeping to the letter of the law. Jesus wants more than people thought he did. To the command, you shall not murder, Jesus adds to not even get angry. To the command, you shall not commit adultery, Jesus adds to not even look at someone else lustfully. Jesus calls for dignity and honor in marriage and divorce and for us to not make oaths that we can't keep. To avoid revenge and instead be more loving and more generous than we think we should be to love our enemies as well as our friends in this upside-down kingdom. And Jesus speaks of the heart as we give, as we pray, or as we fast, these discipleship things. He doesn't want trumpets, a parade, or a display. He's speaking of heart posture, that our worship is for God and God alone. Then Jesus talks about material things. He says, don't store up treasures on earth, Don't store up money or possessions, but instead know that you can have treasures in heaven, spiritual blessings, and a life in God. He says we shouldn't store up those material things, but even more so, we shouldn't even let ourselves worry about them. Jesus reassures us that our Father provides for us in more ways than the flowers of the fields or the birds in the sky. They don't worry about tomorrow. We're called to authenticity and freedom in the way we worship, the way we love, and the way we live. We're also told not to be judgmental because none of us are perfect. We can leave the judgment to God. If there's a speck in someone else's eye, but there's a plank in my own, maybe I need to have a go at removing the plank first or at least let God remove it. And then we're encouraged to ask, to seek, to knock to come before God, a father who loves you, to seek more of the kingdom, knowing that he wants to give good gifts to bless his children. And that's kind of where we are now. That's the main bit of Jesus' sermon. And now we come to the call to action. Through his words, Jesus has painted a picture of the kingdom of God with his teaching, this, this picture of a completely counter-cultural kingdom that we walk towards in our lives of discipleship. John Stott is a theologian, and he said that the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably the least understood and certainly the least obeyed. I wonder if you think those words that we read, or at least that I tried to summarize, are the least understood or the least obeyed. I think it's maybe because of the way it challenges the most deep-rooted parts of us, the way it calls us to enact the words of Psalm 139, to invite God to search us and to know our hearts, to see if there is any offensive way in us and to lead us in the way everlasting. Now, the the way everlasting sounds an awful lot like that narrow path, the narrow path that leads to life, the way everlasting. But notice the word lead. It says lead us in the way everlasting. We're not to be pushed. God doesn't want to do that. That's why Jesus lays out these two gates, and we're able to make our way through either but through his huge amount of love for us he gives us the truth about each one and again because he loves us gives us the freedom to choose ultimately and it might sound a bit intense but ultimately we're choosing destruction or we're choosing life that's what jesus says one gate leads to destruction and one leads to life death or life It's a big question disguised in the image of passing through city gates and journeying along paths. Jesus is very, very clear that the gate that leads to destruction is wide. It's easy to enter. There's space to bring everything with you. It's a well-travelled path. It's familiar. It's comfortable and broad. It appears promising. But really, it ends with that emptiness, that pain and destruction. From a distance, this gate looks like the way to true freedom. On that path, on that wide path, it's your kingdom. It's not God's, it's your kingdom. And in the kingdom of me, I can do what I like. That looks like freedom. Loving those who love me, that's enough keeping tight hold of my money and possessions, that's fine. I need to put me first in the kingdom of me. I can put my trust in things of the world, a relationship, a career, or in what other people think of me. But when those things crumble, my kingdom also crumbles. It seems like freedom, but I would ask Is living in fear of your reputation being spoiled? Freedom. Is overworking because your worth is so in your academics or your job, is that freedom? Is only loving people who are easy to love freedom? I'm not entirely convinced. Now, I've spoken to enough people who wouldn't call themselves Christians to know that a lot of the time, their, percep- their perception of Christianity and of church is that it's full of rules and regulations and terms and conditions. But I'd like us to think tonight that maybe when Jesus invites us into a relationship with God through him, when he calls us to that narrow path, that he isn't actually calling us into that miserable life that people think. When people look at the church, they think, oh, look at them rules. Look at them regulations. It must be miserable. But I don't think that's what's happening. He doesn't call us into a miserable life where we stare over to the wide path with eyes full of envy and regret that we're now on this narrow path but maybe that is the experience you're living now. I don't think it's what Jesus has planned for you, but maybe that's where you feel you're at, that the narrow path doesn't seem to be giving the life that it promises, the life that God promises. And you're so tempted to drop this discipleship thing, to step off that narrow path and to head where everyone else is on that broad, spacious path. Jesus never promised That following him was easy. And that narrow path might be one of sacrifice, of difficulty, and even lonely at times. We're told that few find it. But it's one where we journey with Jesus through it all. And I'd rather have him than not have him. It's a path of obedience. But that might sound boring, but I think it's an adventure because it's an obedience that is born out of a devotion and a love for Christ. And I don't think it's a miserable path because I believe the Spirit gives us joy on the journey despite all the odds. The breadth of life is found on the narrowest path the breadth of life is found on that narrow path through the small gate. Speak to some of the older members of our church that have been on that path of discipleship a little longer than you. They have the joy of the Lord in their hearts. They know where the path is heading towards eternal life and healing and peace towards heaven. And along this journey, they're seeing glimpses of that. Scripture tells us that it's the enemy that steals, the enemy that restricts. And Jesus has come to give us life to the full, life in all its fullness. So actually it's the broad path that is stealing and restricting. It's the narrow one that is giving us the breadth of life. When we're free to live out all the values of the kingdom of God that's when we're on the narrow path to love more than we thought we were able to to forgive and to let go of the need for revenge to experience those shackles of shame and of guilt loosening as Jesus takes it all on the cross that's real freedom that's the freedom that's found through the small gate On that narrow path, the one that Jesus says, few find. But that's not because only few are welcome. That's not true. Few find it, all are welcome. Paul writes in Timothy that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's not saved for a few. But why do only few find it? I think it's because following Jesus leads us to die to ourselves, to be alive in Christ. And there's the sacrifice. You have to let go of something that the world so, so tightly wants you to hold on to your identity, your reputation, your foundations. The narrow gate doesn't lead to a life of sin management, but I think people think it does. I think we sometimes think it does, and that's why few find it. They think it's a life of sin management, where we're dodging sin whilst worrying constantly that we're going to stumble and fall. That doesn't sound like life in all its fullness. That's actually where the religious leaders were in their lives as they listened to Jesus' words, walking on a wide path where trying to be good was the most important thing. Maybe sin management is the wide path instead because that's where they were walking They're listening to Jesus' words, and they're just trying to uphold a reputation of righteousness without actually loving God and his people in their hearts, like Jesus was calling them to do in that Sermon on the Mount. Instead of that, we're invited to walk on the narrow path in a life positioned towards Jesus. As we walk to him, we walk away from sin. We're not dodging it with every fiber of our being, Instead, we're looking at Jesus and walking to him and therefore walking away from the sin. With the help of the Spirit, we leave behind the things of the world that we are forgiven for. We leave them behind. And we leave behind the things that we are freed from. I'm by no means saying this is immediate. I think it's a journey, and that's why discipleship uh, is a long, long journey towards who we're created to be. But there is a heart thing going on as you enter the gate, a decision that says, yes, this is worth it, that my faith is worth it, that Jesus is worth it, that my salvation is worth it. Because Jesus is the gate. So as we enter the narrow gate, we say yes to Jesus. He says it about Himself in John 10 that I am the gate. We decide as we walk through that gate that He is worth walking the narrow path for and with, because He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the gate, He's the path, He's the life. But my question tonight is, if Jesus is worth it, if we've said yes to that question, if Jesus is worth it, what does our faith cost us? Because we read in the Bible that people's faith does cost them. Daniel gets thrown in a den with lions because he refused to bow down to another god. Esther risked her life to save the Jewish people. Paul was imprisoned because he proclaimed the goodness of God and the truth of Jesus. A woman discarded care for her reputation and of her money as she poured that expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus and wiping his feet with her hair. And we see people across the world now who are experiencing serious costs for their faith a serious cost for walking that narrow path now I don't believe God wants us to live in persecution or pain and we can thank him that we're not that we can meet freely in a place like this and we need to pray for those who can't but I do think there is a question of what is the cost of my faith to me where do we notice that we're walking the narrow path? Where does God's kingdom jar with the world around us? Where do those values sit, not quite right with the world we see? There should be things that are different about our lives in Jesus. There needs to be things that are different, that other people see and think, what is going on here? If we're living out that sermon on the mount, the values of that upside-down kingdom of God, there's going to be a cost as we put Jesus first. The cost will be different for all of us, but I think there is a cost. The Bible tells us we can't serve two masters, and we also can't walk on two paths. What has to be second for Jesus to be first? What do we have to let go of to get through that small gate? Instead of making Jesus fit around our lives, it's time to make our lives fit around Jesus. Maybe it's a challenge to you this evening to let go of some stuff. Maybe that's a big challenge. Maybe you're breathing a sigh of relief that Jesus is inviting you to drop some stuff that you want to let go of. I don't know where you sit with that one. Maybe it's a challenge, maybe it's a relief, but there's stuff that we need to shed to walk on that narrow path. Which path are you on? Which destination are we walking towards? Life or destruction? Maybe this is the first time you've thought about this. And please know that Jesus loves you enough to give you a choice. But he also loves you way too much to not invite you to walk on the path that he's on. He loves you way too much to not invite you to walk on the path where he can walk with you. Or maybe tonight you need reassurance that the narrow path that you're on really does lead to life. Maybe your head keeps turning to everyone else on the wide one. Maybe you want the Spirit to help you resist temptation to just jump straight back to where you were before. We need the Spirit to help us live as though our identity is in the kingdom of God rather than in the kingdom of me. We want to respond to the call to lay down our kingdom, to experience walking in the kingdom of God, which leads away from destruction and heads towards life, heads towards Jesus as the way, as the truth, and as the life. Amen.